It is a welcome return to Elijah and revisiting the classics for another unforgettable movie. Hi Elijah, how are you doing? I'm doing well. A few months ago, we revisited the very first James Bond film, Doctor No. This month, we're going to talk about the second James Bond film as we look at the stylish from Russia with Love. So Elijah, how does it compare to Doctor No? I think it's a better film, to be honest. I think it suffers a little bit in the beginning and middle because there's so much going on but by the end once the story really gets going it's incredibly enjoyable yeah it's certainly enjoyable and got a complex plot Graham your thoughts oh no I didn't like it at all (laughs) I found it a big letdown from the warmth and light of Dr. No this was a bit grey dull and ponderous the second outing in the franchise I was expecting it to step up a bit And yes, I thought the plot was very good. And yes, I saw that it was a chess game. But apart from the the fight in the train, I really struggled with this. It was oddly downbeat for me. Less extravagant, less gadgety, less action-based. Well, no, it's more gadgety than Dr. No. Well, he had lots of stuff in Dr. No. He just had a briefcase in this. And maybe bulk and train tickets are very expensive, but I don't know where they spent all the money because this had a lot more budget, didn't it, than the original one? It cost three times as much as Dr. No, yeah. I think it was probably more expensive to film in um, in Turkey than in Jamaica. But also, I mean, they were missing production designer Ken Adams. He was and off filming really Dr. Showed. Strangelove. Yeah. yeah, there's certain things, the credits... Well, I suppose credits in both really were a bit downbeat. It was coloured dots to the Bond theme in the first one, whereas in this it was projection of words on a belly dancer's stomach. More on that later. Um, (laughs) So you think it looked a lot cheaper? Oh, yes, definitely. And and Istanbul was so grey and gloomy. I mean, I worked in Istanbul for six months, and I can tell you the whole time I was there, it was never grey or gloomy. Good grief, the sun split the sky every day. It was an incredible place. It just didn't have that sort of vibrance of Istanbul. Istanbul is crazy. It's constantly moving. It's really lively. Maybe that's because I'd spent some time there that I felt, hang on, this isn't the Istanbul I know. And how they got to walk around in the mosque without taking their shoes off is beyond me, because I went to that mosque, and it's an incredible place. Yeah, money uh, talks, You have to take your shoes off. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Now, much is made today about Daniel Craig's film and their continuity. This also has that. It starts off with Eunice Gason returning to Sylvia Trench. You've got that introduction sequence to her and Sean Connery, which I assume is in Oxford. Dr. No is mentioned. That's the springboard of the plot because Spectre want to get revenge on Bond for what he did in the first film. They say that each of these Craig films, one bleeds into the next. But this also did in, in the way that it set up. You could see it as a standalone adventure, but you can also see it with continuity. What are your thoughts on that, guys? Um, I think, you know, with only the second film in, the little bit of continuity that's there, it's good, but it's not ultra-significant, I guess. Yeah, I'd probably agree with that. It was more of a nod than continuity, wasn't it? It sort of referenced back a bit to the previous film, but I didn't get the feeling that I was in a series of films. Okay. I think you, you'll get more of that as you get on. Funnily enough, I think we're going to go the other way. You'll get less of that as we go on, particularly when we get to the Roger Moore films, and continuity just gets thrown right out the window. I see where you go in that the, the continuity is there, but you don't have to have it. But what is good is you start to get themes coming into the Bond films that everybody loves. 
For example, Desmond Llewellyn turns up as Q for the first time. Not much of a scene. Good Welsh actor, by the way. Um, <sighs> really? I wouldn't have guessed. No, I know. I that know. kind of name. I thought he was like Norwegian or something. <laughs> and then we've got the gadgets. And I, and I do go back to what you said earlier, Graham. I do think that the gadget here is, is quite key. That case, you know, with the money and the knives and the central part it plays in many ways, which we'll come on to in a bit. It's got also got the first pre-credit sequence. You know, I missed that point completely. That passed me by. It's such a, a common thing to see in Bond. I just, <laughs> just expected it and it just passed me by. Yeah, and, and the funny thing with that is when they first filmed it, the actor underneath the mask, obviously Connery played it for a lot of it, but there was a mask on. When they took the mask off, it still looked like Connery. So they had to go back, refilm it, and tape a moustache onto the guy's face so he looked different. <laughs> and and I, what I like about that is, in the book, Fleming had had enough of Bond and he wanted to finish the whole Bond series. So at the end of the book, Bond dies. Rosa Klebb kicks him. Spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't read the book, but it's over 60 years now. It's not my problem. So Rosa Klebb kicks him with a poison knife and Bond collapses to the floor. Now he does bring him back, but you know, his original intention was to kill off Bond. Now they obviously can't do that in the second film of the series. So rather than have Bond die at the end, they sort of have Bond die at the beginning as an in-joke to the book. And I thought that was very clever. One of the things when prepping for this film, I'd got hold of a commentary track that were done for the Criterion Laserdiscs. The Bond organization, E.ON, have banned these tracks. I managed to track the one down. And you could understand why. And Connery started off quite fit to play this role. But when they were in Turkey, he loved the food and he became fat Sean Connery by the end of the film. So if you watch it again, watch the scenes where he's clearly holding his stomach in. Red Grant, played by Robert Shaw. Now, Shaw didn't want to do this, although he was a relatively unknown actor, more known for stage work. He was convinced by Connery to take the part. One of the issues with Shaw is he's a heavy drinker. He died because of alcoholism, died quite young. He didn't even make 50. So he was told he had to shape up for the role, and he was spending five hours a day in the gym before this film started. It was probably the fittest Shaw was in the whole of his career. He also didn't want to dye his hair blonde, and he had to be persuaded to do that as well. Wow. And then he got to do that again for Battle of the Bulge. Yes, that was on, yes. We had that on TV, yes. I must watch that again. But let's stay with Robert Shaw as Red Grant. What What are your thoughts on him? I think he has a, a really good stage presence. When he's on screen, he, he feels intimidating. He doesn't speak for one hour, 20 minutes into the film. The pacing was odd. very strange, wasn't it? It was very odd. I mean, Bond doesn't appear for 18 minutes, well, the real Bond. And the first word spoken, as you say, by the, the villain occurs 30 minutes from the end. It's a strange pacing, yeah. But but also, if we take in that sort of pacing, for one hour, 30 minutes of a two-hour film, everything is being controlled by Spectre. Bond, in like the chess game that the film represents, yeah. Bond is in the right place at the right time. And the only reason he gets out of that is because Kronstein, brilliantly played by Vladik Shabel, who's also in the TV series called UFO, great actor. And he played Kronstein, and it was his game, essentially, his chess game that was engineering this to discredit Bond, to discredit the Russians as well, and get a lector machine that they will sell back to the Russians. You know, for that one hour 30, he's in complete control. What he didn't factor in, which was to become 
the standard of the Bond films is the gadget. Yeah. If Bond did not have a gadget, he would have been dead. By his own fault, too. Yeah. One of the curious things in all the Bond films is how the main villains always underestimate Bond because they think they're intellectually superior. And to a certain extent, they're right. Bond isn't an intellectual. He pretty much thinks there's only one thing. Well, two things. One would be the women and one would be killing. Yeah. Not a whole lot bouncing on there between the brain cells. No, that's that's right. And the snobbery that comes into it. I mean, he only catches out Grant because he had red wine with fish. That was it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It could almost be an Agatha Christie train mystery at this point. It almost tried to play itself off as that for a little bit, except you you know who he is. So I mean, that's clever. that's going back to the Hitchcock thing of building up tension, isn't it? By giving the audience information that the lead characters don't know, you create that tension rather than giving a sudden shock, which is all over in a moment. Tension is far superior. One thing we haven't talked about yet, and we'll just go on to that now, are the Bond women. So at 21, Daniela Bianchi, is the youngest Bond girl ever. She was a oh, model. Wow. Uh, unlike Ursula Andress, she was dubbed. So both were dubbed. I, I get the feeling that, you know, like with Andress, she was chosen more for her looks than her acting capability. But I think she was far better in the role than Andress was. I, I think she actually has a personality that comes through. Not a whole lot of one, but one nonetheless. But she doesn't have that moment that Andress had, you know, where she walks out of the water. You know, that is an iconic 60s image. Or do you think she does have one? I mean, other than the weird flash of uh, near nudity. Yeah, which they struggled to get that past the censor. So let me let me tell you about that. There were a few problems that the censors didn't like. That was one of them, the nudity. Peter Hunt, who was the editor on the film, got on very well with the censors. Now, the censors were very different back in those days. It was one person who essentially controlled it all. And there'd been some problems with Dr. No. They didn't want to hit into any censor problems with From Russia With Love. Now, the main censor got on very well with Peter Hunt. And they knew this scene was coming up. You know, they were going to show him the film and they were worried about that particular nude scene. So they said to Peter Hunt, they said, right, take him out for lunch, get him a few bottles of champagne, settle him down, put him in a good mood, then put the film on. Film is released (laughs) uncut. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. But going back to Daniela, I do think Ursula Andress is far better. I think Daniela is extremely wooden. And you could see that. I think her acting career was very poor after it. But what also didn't help is the director didn't like it, felt she had fat legs. So uh, yeah. she was filmed what? mainly She was filmed mainly from the waist up. And when there are scenes, like with the periscope scene, you just see her legs. That is a different actress. Oh, good grief. Wow. Yeah, that's a different era. Wow. Well, you know, it's that a just, different. That reminds me of uh, there's a Ben Hur commentary for the silent film. And, All right. Uh, a director comments that they uh, didn't want any Italian girls because they didn't think they were pretty enough, and so they went for French girls for what he called the Daphne scene, which is essentially a bunch of naked people parading down the street. Oh, good grief! Oh, wow. <laughs> and that was the twenties, I think twenties or thirties. Yeah, 20s. But there is that whole 60s treatment of, of women that comes through in this film. I'll give you two great examples. Karim Bey giving in to his mistress's sexual demands with the words, oh, it's back to the salt mines. <laughs> or 
or worse when Bond's on the train with his wife saying, just do as I say, then slapping her on the backside. Now, you know, I could do that once. I might not have a hand at come the end of it. I think even for the 60s, that was pushing it. It is very, very misogynist, isn't it? Every woman on screen, aside from Bianchi, Moneypenny, they essentially have no agency, no character. They're just there as objects. The belly dancer, the wrestling girls, who essentially become his little threesome, uh, implied. And by the way, another line from that commentary track, those two women hated each other in real life as well. Oh, that's good. It carries <laughs> yeah. on on screen. Yeah. There's certainly you'd never get away with it, but I'm amazed they got away with it even then, some of this stuff that, that went on. So we've spoken about Robert Shaw, but now let's talk about one of the great female performances in this film that we haven't mentioned. Lotta Lenya as Rosa Klebb. She Another is one. quite fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In an awful way. It's such a really striking character as the villain. You know, I mean, Robert Shaw, who is brilliant as Red Grant and really makes an impression, to upstage him requires something special. And I thought Lotta Lenye, the way she plays it, clearly lesbian at a time when that was illegal, both here and Oh, in, is that what she UK. was? Yeah. Did, did you not, not pick that I one did out? not catch on that. Now, that's interesting, the way she no. strokes Titania's face. It's quite cleverly done. So, when she goes to see Grant, a man touches her and she pulls back. But then she reaches out and strokes Titania's face when she's sort of training her for the mission. It's much more overt in the book, I will be honest. But then the gypsy girls fighting the nude in the book, Fleming was upset they didn't do that for the film. Yeah, <laughs> of course but, yeah. but um, And you will love this bit of, bit of trivia. This was the last film Kennedy saw before he was shot. That sucks. He was a huge James Bond fan, and you'll not be surprised to hear that. Probably saw himself as a uh, kindred spirit. <laughs> a man I, of action. Yeah. Singular action. So, highlights of the film. What works for you? Not a lot of it worked for me, I must be honest. There were some things. I thought the fight on the train was quite excellent, and I thought the rest of it was pretty poor. I mean, I really, really couldn't get to grips with the film. I thought the end scene where they're escaping on the um, the speedboat with the stupidly placed barrels of fuel <laughs> at the back, I just that just made me so angry. It was just so obvious what was going to happen there. Yeah, you're laughing. I, I was just looking at this going, what the hell? Oh, 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 there's a flare gun. That's not foreshadowing at all, is it? Yeah. Oh, good grief. It's called subtlety. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> and the helicopter scene, well, yeah, it was obvious it was a toy helicopter. I could see that absolutely clearly. But I, for its time, I suppose it was good. But I just found it very plodding. I found the pacing plodding. I, I found Connery was good. I thought the, the both the villains were excellent, I thought. The other thing that really drove me mad was the production values. They were incredibly poor. I mean, the hotel rooms in particular were jaw-droppingly bad. For the money they had to spend on building that set, they could have just filmed it in a real hotel in Istanbul. I mean, it would have been far more realistic. It did look like it was made of balsa wood and papier-mâché. It was shocking. 
Okay. It probably so, was made of balsa wood and paper mache. <laughs> it really was, yeah. So thank you for the answer to my question, what about this film works for you, as you've now spent most of that answer slagging it off. Nothing. Nothing works for me. The, the fight scene, I thought uh, Connery was great in that and, it, and the real struggle for life. I thought that was well done. And the gadget saving them, I thought that was excellent. But yeah, traveling around underground in Istanbul and long train journeys don't really make for a good action film. I liked the Karen Bay character. That was his last film. He committed suicide after that. Oh. Uh, he was dying of cancer. He was on that John Wayne film, The Conqueror, where they'd set off a nuclear bomb near it and they, all the cast eventually died of cancer. And in fact, there are moments in the gypsy camp sequence where it's a stand-in for him because he was just too ill to stand up. I thought his performance was great. An enjoyable, sleazy character. I love the when he says, like, oh, they're all my children. It's like, how many kids do you have, dude? No wonder it's back to the salt mines for him then. Oh, yeah. Not again. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the train fight was actually really good. It feels more train like a brawl good. than an over-choreographed fight. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Like yeah. they're actually fighting for their lives. And that was, yeah, a, I th- that was I enjoyment. That. I actually like the helicopter chase sequence. <laughs> I don't know why, but it just, it kind of, it, it does it for me. It, as well, did, cheesy did, as it is. Did it just tickle you as funny or did you really think, oh, this is a really good, you know, you know, the throwing grenades. At, um, I just couldn't get on with that at all. It, I think kind of both. I kept yeah. wondering why they weren't shooting bullets at him. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> like you're throwing grenades. <laughs> you can just shoot at the car. And that is one thing where this film did fall down. And Elijah, I sent you a picture of it earlier. Graham, you've seen it. Vehicle from, from Russia with Love was a Chevrolet truck that he drove around, <laughs> supposedly the Balkans in. Fantastic. <laughs> it kind of looked like it had been shot in Scotland instead of the Balkans. Uh, that, that's where the motorboat chase sequence was shot in Scotland. Oh, okay. That's why it looks like it. And so, the helicopter chase was in Scotland, wasn't probably, it? Probably, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'd have to go back and check on that. The small interactions with him and Bunny uh, Penny. Oh, uh, yeah. Yes. I, don't know, yes. I feel like they had a lot of chemistry, and it's sad that you know they're they're not actually a couple in the film. Yes, and despite Money Penny's best efforts, she never really bagged him, did she? I mean, that's the same in the books as well, but more up-to-date, that would be, well, not that much more up-to-date, really. Sam and Diane in Cheers. Had they ever got together, that would have been the end of that series. Although mm. you always wanted them to get together. I, I feel but, like it gives Money Penny a little bit of agency since she's clearly playing with him as he is with her. Yeah, yeah. Instead of just, you know, falling into his arms at his first glance, you know. And I think you're right. And I think in a relationship, they would have more than been the equal of one another. But, and but then do- Money Penny gets a little cameo, doesn't he? She she gets sent out of the room and then her M says, you're probably listening to this on the intercom. So she shows that she's actually quite worldly wise. She gets sent out of the room because the men are embarrassed, but she continues to listen on the intercom. I thought that was quite fun. <laughs> <laughs> and again, it's building up those actors, Bernard Lee as M, Lois Maxwell as Money Penny. I've got to agree with both of you. I think the, the fight sequence on the train, possibly one of the best fight sequences in any Bond film. I think it, it's really well played out. It's that moment where Spectre's plan goes wrong because they hadn't worked on that Bond having a gadget. And also that Red Grant is 
more sleazy than they thought. They thought they'd trained him. He actually was just a cheap thug underneath of it all. He would do that for the money. A real assassin probably wouldn't have done that because he'd have bought into the Spectre organization. So there were two factors that Kronstein hadn't allowed for. But I do like the fact up to that point, Bond isn't in control. He's being controlled. And that fight sequence, which other than one, a couple of brief moments, I think, is really those two fight in there. So I thought that was good. Script by Richard Maubaum. I had some great one-liners. The the famous one being, she should have kept her mouth shut when they shot that guy sneaking <laughs> yeah. out of the apartment. Oh, I thought it was yeah. Quite good. <laughs> yeah. That was an interesting, the poster was for Call Me Buona, a film done by Eon Productions before they got fully under Bond. Oh, right. Can we just go back to the, the uh, fight in the train? Yeah. How did they do that? With those huge Panavision cameras and that in such a tiny enclosed yeah. space, it's incredible that they actually were able to make it feel like they were beating the living daylights out of it, one another. It took a number a of days. Yeah, and, and the fact it was the actors for the most part and not yes. stuntmen. Well, I was going to say, Sean Connery, from what I've read, he actually was kind of a brawler. Yeah, he in uh, real life and got into fights and bars and stuff like yeah. that. Oh, so. Yeah, he had a fairly tough upbringing. Fame came to him rather late. I mean, this was, he was now in his mid 30s about this time. He was a tough character and he was good mates with Robert Shaw, also a tough, no nonsense, hard drinking character. They probably were actually going at it for real, real, real there for a bit. Luckily, nobody came mm-hmm. out of it too badly hurt. And it's but, not like today, you know, where every punch is being thrown by a different stunt person. Exactly. Six and that, cuts that's per a, punch. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, we've got to the ridiculous stage now with um, the Hollywood fist fight where, you know, people seem to be able to take unbelievable amount of punishment and it's all so chopped and cut together so quickly. It just, you can't follow what's going on. That's what makes the, uh, the John Wick movies so refreshing in that respect. Yes, the yeah. long takes, yeah. Keanu Reeves is doing most of the stunts, so you can have those long takes. Finally, for me, the big step up was the music. Monty Norman had done the score for the first film, but Barry done the arrangement of the Bond theme. Barry had full range this time around. I thought he was really good in it. He'd also tried to create a theme called the 007 piece, which he uses once or twice in the film. And that for him is him trying to change the Bond theme, but it was too late. Monty Norman's theme is hooked indelibly to that character from that point on. What I did notice, a couple of things. One, again, for the second film, there is no opening song. The song comes at the end of the film and is briefly heard on a radio in the Oxford sequence. But during the helicopter battle, they've spotted in some of Monty Norman's music from the first film, from Dr. No, which I thought that was really bizarre. Wow, okay. So, so hang on, there was no song at the beginning. I thought it was Matt Monroe singing the theme. Matt Monroe sings at the end. Oh wow! Okay, you can catch a little bit of it on the radio. Uh, Ah, him in Oxford. Elijah, your thoughts on the music? I think it fit the film for the most part. I enjoyed it. Other than that, I don't have a whole lot of thoughts on it. Okay, so from Russia with Love. Okay, we seem to have very mixed feelings on it. It was a much bigger hit than Dr. No in the UK. Funnily enough, neither Dr. No or From Russia With Love on their own were big hits in the States. And by the time From Russia With Love was released in America, Goldfinger was already filming. And Goldfinger 
is the Bond film that lifted it to the stratosphere worldwide. In the scheme of things, just to do a final wrap-up then, would you watch From Russia With Love again? Graham? No. Elijah? Um, Sure, I'd watch it again, especially since it's free on Prime over here. I'd watch it just for that fight sequence alone. Oh, <laughs> okay. right. Which is really good. Yeah, guys. But when you've got when you've got uh, Goldfinger coming next, I mean that is that for me that defined my childhood Bond experience. Just really is exceptional. I can't wait to to review that, and I can't wait to watch it again. I haven't seen it in many many years. Guys, it's been a pleasure speaking Bond. As a special bonus, Warren Ringham is just going to give us a few words on the Bond scores. So for the next part of the show, we are joined by Warren Ringham from Cue the Music, the excellent Cue the Music, for a discussion about the film scores in the first three James Bond films. Hi Warren, how are you doing? Hey guys, I'm very good. Thanks for having me on again. Uh, real pleasure to be here. Oh, no, it's a always a pleasure. Yeah, You're always um, a pleasure, yeah. Always a pleasure for you joining us on the show. Thank so uh, a couple of weeks ago we did a little shout out for Cue the Music just wondering really what's the latest um well it's not the greatest news really i mean we are sort of putting the show into a bit of hibernation for the time being we haven't really been able to raise the funds that we need to run the tour in 2020 or 21 but being realistic there's not really going to be any shows happening this year and i think it'll be very very risky to put any shows on next year i mean i say that there's still one or two shows that are scheduled to go ahead but we'll see how that kind of goes over the next few months but we've cancelled about half of them now and i'm expecting more to go i mean somebody came up with a great expression last night and it's one i've been using all day because i've been sort of putting the news out there but it's such stormy waters at the moment and the best thing to do is take the boat out the sea and then when that storm calms down we can put the boat back in the sea the trouble is at the moment it's just such a volatile situation and it is going to be for the foreseeable future that puts us in such grave danger to try and keep operating and I'm not uh, as depressed and as gutted and as down about it as you might think because I do believe that we'll be back and obviously so many other people are going through a really hard time the whole industry is very very nervous I mean, absolutely terrified, if the truth be told, that, that we're not going to have an industry to come back to because it, ours will be the last industry that, that opens. So, yeah, it's a difficult time. It's a difficult time. We're just going to have to sort of batten down the hatches and see everyone on the other side, I think. But also, you've been sort of giving out there as well with uh, some of those uh, wonderful online talks. So I've been trying to do little bits to help with the Bond community in the small way that I can. You know, we did a Bond Girl chat last week. We've done a couple of funny sort of Q&As with the band. We've had a load of the guys on. We had a really nice Bond community um, event that we were trying to do at the weekend. And there's sort of plans to do other things. When things kind of ease up that we can get together in smaller groups, I'm hoping we can get in the studio and maybe record some new cues from the film, some of which we'll probably talk about today, actually. Uh, I'm hoping we're going to record lots of the Barry cues and possibly put them out as sort of online shows that people can visit in a virtual way rather than in, in a real way. 
oh, we'd like to help you promote that. So when that's yep. going along, let us know. We'll make sure that's fully advertised with our shows. So we have a lot of people asking about it. And, you know, the, mm. the, the show we did with you is still, I think, Graham, you correct me if yep, I'm wrong. Yeah, no, but, it is still. Yep, our highest rated show. Goodness me, ask to see ask my mum. She's listened to it at least 60 times. <laughs> we, think, we think she's great. Wow, what a woman. <laughs> okay. Well, as I said, anything we can do to help, just let us know and we'll sort of certainly get the word out there for you. So let's talk about James Bond music and because the whole process of this, we're watching these films with this chap in America who'd never seen a Bond film before. And so we're taking him from the beginning and it's been an interesting journey. Wouldn't it be great to wipe these films from your memory and be able to start again and go through all that <laughs> journey of discovery? Yeah, yeah, mind you, at our age, some of it is a journey of discovery. <laughs> 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 really? Was this in the, was this in the first one? I don't film. remember this. So how's he enjoying it? Oh, he's loving them. Absolutely loving Amazing. them. Um, we're going to look at the first three films. So let's start with Dr. No. Dr. No, essentially, is back in 62, was a blank slate. The books were popular films just the first time we were coming to it a lot of things were there for a first and they chose monty norman as the composer check in on this there was only i could only find one other film that he'd worked on which he'd written a score for a film called the two faces of dr jekyll and other than the word doctor there's no real comparison between the two films so why do you think he was selected Warren? Well, they had a relationship, a prior relationship with the producers in the theatre world. And I think that ultimately, at that time, you've got to realise that they were just fumbling in the dark a little bit. Well, a lot of the things that we take for granted now, everything from the gun barrels to the Bond girls to the gadgets to Q, you know, to all those iconic things. I and mean, when I say Q, I'm talking about Desmond Llewellyn. Those things all came with a little bit of luck and time and kind of, a little bit of testing and adjusting over the first couple of films to find what really worked. And that definitely applied to the music. Really, I don't think it's till Goldfinger that the music really takes hold of Mm. how we kind of know it and and love it today. Really going back to Dr. No, I think they were searching for a sound. They didn't really know what it was that they were searching for. You know, I just think it's one of those things that who knew what the impact the music would have on the films, particularly just that first I just think it was a case of he was someone they knew and they went with him. Okay, it's interesting because before we get on to the famous theme and everyone think associated with that, Monty Norman's score is really split into two bits. You've got the sequences that are scene set in and you've got the underscore dramatics like that spider sequence, for example. I think it's a curious mix. Again, we'll exclude the Bond theme for a moment. But what do you think of the score? The thing that stands out for me is that it's a very dated sound. With Barry's scores, you, you always feel that they're kind of on the cutting edge of the sound and looking forward. And actually, when you listen back to his scores, I don't even think they, a lot of them that actually don't even date very badly. They still sound, they still have a, a real great sound to them that doesn't make you think that doesn't really work. It still works now, is what I'm trying to say. But I think with the Doctor No soundtrack, I think it's sort of very much looking backwards. And it sort of feels to me a kind of a made-for-TV kind of soundtrack from the 50s. And that Mm. kind of spider sequence you talk about, I think that really underlies that. I mean, you've got that really bad sort of sync point where Bond is crushing the the tarantula with his shoe and and you have the orchestral hits 
to match it. Now, I mean, that to be fair, that wasn't actually, I don't think that was even Monty Norman's idea. I think it was the director's idea to do that. It is a very kind of um, TV scoring kind of way of, of doing of doing scoring. And I, I think that sort of gives it a dated feel. But with that said, I don't think it's the worst score in the world. It's, the, it's probably one of the weaker ends of the Bond scores. I mean, it doesn't compare to any of the Barry ones. For me, it doesn't yeah. compare to the Arnold one. I think that the some of the other ones that are one-hit wonders are, are better as well. But there are some good moments in it. I mean, he did travel out and spend a good deal of time in Jamaica to get yeah. the flavour of, of the country and the flavour of the music scene out there. And you do feel those vibes within the films. They're lovely little ditties, the, the little songs that he's written along the way that are sort of local sounding songs, especially the kind of the source music that's used. And they work really, really well. They're, they're very nice little pleasant numbers, some of them. but as a Bond score that we've kind of gone to know and love uh, going forward, it, it doesn't really stand up in comparison to a Barry score. But if you take away all of that and look at it in isolation, it's not a bad score in places. No, that's that's right. And say so one of the biggest surprises for me, and we mentioned it a couple of minutes ago, is Underneath the Mango Tree, sung by Diana Coupland. Now, you're a lot younger than us, Warren, but we hmm. three old guys of a certain age, we remember Diana Copeland as being the wife of Sid James in Bless This House. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us do, Jeff. I Some think of us, so. yes. Even, yeah, yeah, that's really obscure. Jeez. <laughs> no, that did catch me by surprise. But there was an arrangement of a suite of his music done for, you probably know this, Warren, that Silver Screen did it, Bond Back in Action CD. Yeah, recorded by the, the Prague Phil. Is it that one you're talking that's about? That's it. it, yes, that's the yeah. one. And, yeah. and there's a, a five-minute suite of Monty Norman's score on that, which is, yeah, not the greatest, as you were saying. But, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's... Yeah, I think that those those cues are definitely the weaker part of the soundtrack. I quite like the, the sort of ditty stuff that he uses, the, the local sound, the, you know, the things like uh, Jump Up and the Jamaican-flavoured stuff is is actually really, really nice. But... What you would class as the orchestral cues are the weak part of the score for me, for sure. Yeah. And, of course, everything fades into insignificance with the creation of the James Bond theme, which has had its share of contention over the years and mm. has been subject to a number of court cases. So as it stands, and before I pass it over to you, let's see if I've got this right, because we'll always have to cut this out of the show if I don't. It is... <laughs> it, it is credited to Monty Norman, but the arrangement is credited to John Barry. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And I always think it's it's also the fairest thing to do is also credit John Barry for the orchestration as well, because he did all his own orchestration in these early films. And that's such a fundamental part of John Barry's sound, I believe. Arranged and orchestrated by John Barry. And what a theme. I mean, oh, uh, amazing. Yeah, it's one of the most instantly recognisable pieces of film music. And who was the guitar player? Was that Vic Flack? Vic Flick. Vic Flick. Vic Flick. Yeah. Vic Flick, who famously had a a packet of cigarettes to prop up his strings, and they reckon that's what gave his guitar the unique sound for that particular recording. Can you believe it? A packet of cigarettes (laughs) wedged under the strings. And they say it's bad for your health. (laughs) I mean, my understanding, again, I bow to your 
vastly superior knowledge on this, is that when John Barry did this, part of the agreement was he would get a greater role in the next Bond film. Is that correct or is that an urban myth? Um, well, that was. I think that's what was promised to him. I think actually subsequently that probably nearly didn't happen because he was certainly told if you do a good job, we'll we'll get you back to do the other scores. But reportedly Monty Norman was offered from Russia with Love first, but he basically started talking about money and uh, Harry Salzman famously said, you know, along the lines of if we have to talk money, then we can't do business or something like that. And so therefore <laughs> they, they didn't use him and, and they went to, to John Barry to, to do from uh, to do from Russia with Love. Yeah. Sorry, John Barry was brought in to do the theme because they were so desperate for a, a main theme for Dr. No, and they didn't have anything that they liked from Monty Norman and he was struggling to come up with anything. Although we say orchestrated and arranged by John Barry. I mean, it doesn't really tell the story because to me, an arrangement and well, certainly an arrangement anyway, is to take an existing theme and arrange it into something different. But I mean, what John Barry really did with the very, very basic outline that Monty Norman gave him was very, very creative. I mean, he brought so much to that party that Monty Norman didn't that, in reality, it goes down, and this was part of the contract that Monty Norman would get the credit as the composer. Um, but the reality is that it should have been more of an equal split, in my opinion. You know, that's not a legal point. I'm saying that's in my opinion. If you break down who contributed what, I think a legal split of the ownership of the composition would have been a much fairer way of deciding it. But one of the things, and we mentioned a moment ago that. It is a score of its period. It has dated. This hasn't dated. This is as fresh and as punchy now as it must have been when it first came out. For sure. I mean, I can't really put my finger on why that is, because I don't think the big band music particularly does date as well as that. I think it's probably a lot to do with its iconic nature and the, its use throughout popular culture over the years. You know, even if you hear a more modern version of it, it's easy to go back and listen to that 60s recording because, yeah, and still think of it as as not dating because you're, it's so ingrained in our psyche and our everyday kind of everyday life that we hear that tune being played. But it is also just a fantastic piece of music that I think that also has a big part to do with it because it's just so well written. I mean, it's it's perfect for what it's written for a sneaking debonair, dangerous spy. And they certainly knew how to push that theme in that film, the amount of times that it's used throughout. I think I counted it once for a podcast, another podcast, I think it was something like, I think it's used like eight times and, a, and three halves or something like that. I mean, it's, I can't remember that number, but it's, it's a lot. Um, and I sort of wonder whether it's down to a, a number of reasons for whether it was just down to the fact that they just didn't have anything else that they could use or they just liked it. I mean, I think it was probably a combination of that. They just loved it so much that they wanted to use it everywhere. But I kind of unknowingly was such a clever idea for the longevity of Bond because it really gave him a theme that was so associated with that character. And, and by using it that often in the first film, it really does set it up so well for the rest of the series. 
it, normally you probably would have used it once or twice and it wouldn't have uh, ingrained it as much, I don't think, as what doing it that way did. Did they bring it out as a single uh, when the the film first came out? Yeah, they did. There's a different version recorded, actually. So there's the one that's on the soundtrack and the one that's played the most. Probably anybody listening put on the version of the James Bond theme that they have on their phones and on their collection. There's a good chance that will be the soundtrack one. But two weeks later, the John Barry Orchestra went in and recorded another version, which was the single version which was released for the charts. And it is actually quite a different sounding recording. You know, obviously the mic positions were slightly different and there's slightly slightly different things in the arrangement, very tiny little things with the brass. And of course there's the odd split and stuff in the horns in the single version that there isn't in the the soundtrack version. Warren, which one do you prefer? That's a great question because it requires an answer. And I think probably my answer is the, the soundtrack version. But the single version does have some stuff in it that I really, really like. I think I probably prefer parts of the verse, if you like, the guitar riff parts in the single version. But the middle eight on the uh, soundtrack version is just unbeatable. The feel in it. The swing those guys have got, you know, they are absolutely laying down the beat and it's just got so much energy. It just oozes out of the recording. And I, I mean, that's something that those guys had in so much abundance in those days. And I'm not saying that we don't have it now, but I think the way that you recorded it in the 60s really captured that energy a lot better because you didn't have so much the studio compression and the oh, um, yeah. effects added afterwards. At the time, it was you know, a few mics dotted around the room and just literally let it rip. And now you get a much more kind of um, cleansed, kind of almost um, uh, sterile. Sterile. Sterilizing. That's the word I'm looking yeah. for. Yeah, yeah. You get that sort of sound now, which you didn't get then. After that, we come on to From Russia With Love, which is, you know, as you said at the beginning, it's more the development towards what we expect of the music from the James Bond film. How does it work for you, From Russia With Love? I must say that my opinion on this doesn't necessarily uh, marry with the majority of the Bond community on this. Like I have quite strong feelings that I, I feel that John Barry was filing his feet with this score. And I think sometimes that can be misinterpreted with the, in some way of a criticism. And it's not. This score's got some fabulous cues in it. I mean, James Bond with bongos, I absolutely adore uh, as a cue. 007, we know we're going to talk about that in a minute, but I love that cue. Um, I really think it's a fabulous cue. Uh, there's things like stalking, which is very much fits in with a lot of the sound that he uses in other films, and the gypsy, gypsy yeah. dance, and you know the, the the fight, the girl fight scene music is absolutely incredible as well. I love that, and it's classic Barry. But I do feel that there are parts of the score which really show Barry kind of finding his feet, and I also feel that you can maybe tell that. He's got the producers very much looking over his shoulder at every corner on this. And, you know, he didn't maybe didn't have the trust that he would go on to have with Goldfinger and, and subsequently after that, because it was his early start in scoring as well. He hadn't done very much at the time and he hadn't proven himself as a film score writer yet. So, you know, I think it's natural that there's gonna that he was finding his feet. But for me, I think that comes across a little bit. I mean, to even to the point. We had, at the end of that film, when you've got the, the, the scene when Bond's trying to evade the helicopter and then subsequently the boat 
fight scene after that. You've got Monty Norman's music being reused from Dr. No. Yes, now, yeah. A, could you imagine that ever happening in another John Barry film after that? I don't think so. And B, how would a John Barry have felt about it, bearing in mind all the controversy around the James Bond theme from Dr. No? I don't think you'd be too amused to have had couple of cues just lifted straight out of the Dr. No soundtrack and put into the From Russia With Love soundtrack. So I think those kind of things do show that he was finding his feet and didn't have the, the John Barry sound and freedom to write that he would have in the films after that. A couple of points on that. Firstly, do you have any idea why they put that Monty Norman music there? And I, I only just spotted it last time I watched the film as well. Do you know, I do know the answer to it, but I can't remember it because I did look this up and I think it might be something to do with the fact that it was a lot, it might have been a last minute change or the music that, that was written didn't fit or something like that. I think it was an edited decision. Can't actually remember the reason for it, I'm afraid. That was Peter Hunt was editor, wasn't he, on the film? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. Oh, nice one, Peter. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and also it's, again... Until we get to On the Secret Service, it's the last Bond film that doesn't have a song over the opening credits. So the yeah. the, the actual song, the Matt Monroe song, yeah. doesn't appear till the end credits. Or uh, actually, no, it appears twice, doesn't it? The end credits and that sequence where in the very beginning where you see James Bond and you hear it on the radio. Well, yeah. you do, yeah. And, of course, famously, Matt Monroe went to see the film with his wife and they didn't have any idea. They thought it was going to be used on the opening credits and they didn't know. And, of course, when it came on the radio like that, Matt Monroe's wife thought that was it and she was absolutely devastated. But then, of course, when they heard it at the end, they were they were relieved and delighted and absolutely over the moon with it. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, you do get a cracking arrangement at the start of the film. But we call From Russia With Love a title theme. But yeah, technically speaking, I guess it isn't. It's an absolutely fabulous opening credits music that John Barry arranged, of course, because Lionel Bart wrote the music from From Russia With Love. Yeah. And again, you do a, a great cover of that song on your show. I think it's one of the standouts mm-hmm. for me. I just thought that was brilliantly put over. Good as Matt and Rose version, if you're my honest opinion. Oh, I don't know about that, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so in the middle of all of this, John Barry tries to create his own James Bond theme, the 007 theme. And it's a great piece of music, but it never caught on, did it? He drops it into to most of his James Bond films. Um, when you say it didn't catch on, I mean, the thing is, he used it basically because he wanted to come up with a theme that he didn't have to keep paying royalties on. <laughs> because every time he used Monty Norman's one, of course, he had to pay royalties. And I believe that's part of the reason why he came up with this 007 theme. But I think he also just wanted to give him a second theme. But yeah, I think it probably hasn't stood the test of time that the the James Bond theme has. But I mean, he did use it in five films. I mean, it's of course, it's in From Russia With Love. Thunderball, You Only Live Twice, Diamonds Are Forever, and Moonraker. So it, it did get used a, a fair bit. Yeah. Of course, it's very clever because I, I don't know if you know this, but the actual main rhythmic pattern to it is made up of seven notes. Seven notes repeating round and round, you see. I didn't know that for years. Somebody was a non-musician <laughs> and pointed that 
pointed that out to me and I was a bit horrified that I hadn't clocked it. But it's a you know clever idea, isn't it? I love these shows. I learn so much. Thank you very much, Warren. I can't really take credit for that, but somebody else came up with that. I'm just passing the information along. Brilliant. And then after From Russia With Love, we've got one of the first great scores, which is Goldfinger. And again, I was watching this the other week, and it's bold, it's brassy. You open with that fantastic Shirley Bassey song. And as soon as that song's finished, you go straight into Into Miami, which again is another wonderfully confident piece of music. What are your thoughts on the Goldfinger score and what are your personal highlights? Oh, blimey, we better start a new podcast here. And <laughs> I mean, where do you start? You can't, I mean, yes, oh, yeah. The Goldfinger soundtrack's fantastic. I mean, look, the one thing you do have to say about the Goldfinger soundtrack is it is quite a short one. You know, there's not tons and tons of music. The next one after this, Thunderball, is such an epic score in terms of the size of the orchestra, in terms of the amount of cues, the size of the actual soundtrack. This is a lot, a lot smaller than that, but it's still ph- phenomenal. And of course, what you get here with John Barry composing both the song and the score is you get this wonderful symbiotic relationship between the two. And you get that song mm. threaded through literally every cue in the film. And actually, later on in the series, you know, particularly Thunderball, because of kind of an accidental thing with Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, sometimes you have two themes that are sort of playing off each other within the score. And going forward, of course, like on a nice secret service, you've got the main instrumental theme and that we have all the time in the world. But in this one, it's all, all around Goldfinger. Literally every single cue is a, a, a dance around various riffs or patterns or notes or chord structures of Goldfinger. And so there is this sort of wonderful thread that runs right from the start to the finish. And because it's such a fantastic song, it's there's just so much material to mine from it. So I love this score. And I mean, you mentioned Into, Into Miami. I think you probably find most Bond fans would put that in their top top five, if not higher, of, of cues from the series. It's there's just that amazing opening shot, that huge yes. sweeping shot from the helicopter down into the pool and the guy diving off the top. It's, and the music just is just so perfectly set off against that. It's it's just John Barry at his genius best. And he has an absolute ball writing for this film. And, he, and he, you know, he said, it. I, I'm sure I've seen him say that this is his favourite score where everything sort of really came together. And, you know, you can tell he's been given a free hand on this film is why I always say that I feel that from Russia of Love is that sort of developing bond sound here. It's, and this kind of, of course applies to the film, you know, everything from the, the fact that the title song is over the titles and is such an iconic sound and song that the bond girls and the gadgets, the car, everything kind of really is cemented. And the format of bond, if you like, is really found in this film and never more so than with that, score and the music and the sound it's interesting you say that because i was just thinking back as you're saying that to the sequence in from russia with love where he's in the hotel room and he's walking around this is where he's working out where you know he's been bugged and obviously he's been caught into um kronstein's trap but they're playing the bond theme and when you come to a sequence in goldfinger like the alpine drive again you could have fitted the bond theme in but he does something so special with that Alpine Drive sequence. Again, it's bold, it's confident, 
it's not repetitive. I, I just think it's uh, mm. amazing. Absolutely, um, yeah, stunning. And then we come on to another one of my highlights. And, you know, if I was to do a top 10 of Bond pieces of music, Dawn Raid on Fort Knox. Mm. What? Over five minutes it goes. I think my favourite cue from this soundtrack is actually Odd Jobs pressing engagement. Um, yes. I've always <laughs> had, yeah, oh, I've always had a real... I just love, I just love that cue that, you know, the Timps in particular, the ba, 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 ba. It's so exciting, that arrangement. And it's kind of, you know, Goldfinger theme arranged in a different way. Fabulous. That is an amazing cue as well, uh, Dawn Raid. And, of course, it, it sort of harks back to an era where you could write a cue like this to a film like that, you know, that you wouldn't get that opportunity now because everything's cut so fast and, sequences are much shorter and everything's much more punchy where in those days you know you had these really long sweeping extended shots where you could actually have the opportunity to develop a, a thematic idea and and layer it as was john barry does so much in these scores is he just takes an idea repeats it and adds a layer to it repeats it and adds another layer to it repeats it and adds another layer to it of course, when he came with Gumball Safe and Our Majesty's Secret Service, you know, that's a great example of a cue that's just layered upon layer upon layer with the same kind of ideas just being repeated over and over. And that's very much the same with Dawn Rage. You know, it's a, it's a repetitive cue that's layered to kind of build the tension through that long extended scene. It's, it's fabulous. It really does work in terms of that tension building that yeah. he's so good at accompanying with his music. Now, today, if they did a sequence like that, and I accept all you're saying about, you know, the, the cuts would be quicker, but they would keep the music going. All through that action sequence would be music. The moment the gates are blown and the end of the Dawn Raid on Fort Knox sequence, there's no music until our job's trapped in the safe. Yeah. And then it starts again. And they would never do that today. Well, I think absence of music in these scores can be effective, uh, as effective as actually having it there. And it wasn't until I started analysing these scores for these sorts of podcasts and I started watching the films literally just focusing on the scores that it, I realised how often in these films there isn't music. And certain films have a lot of that. But yeah, I think used in the right way, it can be incredibly effective. We've seen, I know we've only briefly talked about them here, but you've seen it sort of you know go from dr no where they're trying to find their feet they change course completely with from russia with love and again it's uh finding your feet to this to goldfinger which is just incredible absolutely that brings us to the end of this uh little journey on this one and what i'd like to do warren is uh when we get through to the next three films what I'd like to do is, obviously, if we get cue the music updates, love to chat to you about those and, and get those out there for our listeners. But definitely like to get back when we uh, get through the next three and have another talk with you. That's OK. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Thank you very much for having me on again. Oh, no, oh, it's thank a pleasure. You thank you. Yes, it always is. Thank you. OK, we'll see you next time. Oh, cool.
James Bond doubleheader, we return to Elijah to talk about Goldfinger. You ready for this, Elijah? Absolutely. Now, re-watching Goldfinger, I realised that this is the first of the James Bond films which really did set the formula that we've all come to know and love. But does it hold up all these years later? Watching Goldfinger, it felt like I was watching a very, very Bondsy Bond. The other two, they almost feel like prequels. And this feels like the actual thing? Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. They were trying it out on the first one, see how to do it, see what they could get away with, I guess, Yeah, and the styles and everything. This one, Sean Connery goes full bore. I think he was in the first two, but there's something I feel that was a little bit different about his performance in this one. I think what you're saying is interesting because they've changed director. Terence Young, who really created the character of Bond with the suit and everything and the way Connor reacted. And then suddenly Terence Young is out. We'll talk about that later. And Guy Hamilton comes in and he ups the ante on the whole thing. And I think it's interesting what both of you just said there about the fact that the other two felt like almost like prequels. It was like, okay, we're going to test this out. We're going to test out our Bond villain here. We're going to test out a Bond girl here. And then all of a sudden, it all comes together in a way that it hadn't been done in the other films, bright and sparkling. I mean, Graham, what do you think? Yeah, I think this one really was so different from the other two. It was almost like night and day. Yes, we had the same character of Bond. Yes, we had the Bond girls and we had Q Division giving him gadgets. But this time, everything was turned right up to 11. The original set director for Dr. No was back in this one. And boy, can you tell it. All the sets looked sparkling. The cinematography was excellent. And the amount of gadgets that he had, the car uh, and that sort of thing, really took it up to another level. I think this was the one where they really hit their stride. So Guy Hamilton made it much more comic booky. I mean, if you look at it, From Russia With Love, it's almost like a big chess game. It's it's almost like it could be a spy film of the period, a Le Carrier. Dr. No was very much a British movie of that time, but this was something completely different. It was bigger, bolder, brighter, and a worldwide hit. It was very much more Hollywood as well. I mean, the other two felt like uh, British films. This felt like a world film, you know. It felt very, very well produced and and well put together. You've got a lighter tone, the gadgets, the spectacle. If you were a kid at that time watching this film, this would have been the one you remember. It, It shaped Bond more than the other two. I would say Dr. No One from Russia would love. They were more adult in themes. This doesn't have that at all. This is more universal. Do you agree or not? Well, I certainly agree because I was a kid of that <laughs> that yeah. time. I went to yeah. see this in the cinema watching it recently. Apart from the fact that I could actually see everything that was going on because it, in my cinema back in Northern Ireland, it was very dark. <laughs> you couldn't see half the action. But this was just so different from the other two. I just couldn't believe it. This is the bond that shaped my relationship with Bond 
as a child, that is, you know, I, I immediately asked for the James Bond car for, as a Christmas present and those sorts of things because there was a <laughs> yeah. there was a dinky toy version, um, yes, which I, I now believe well. is worth a fortune. It is worth a fair bit of money if you've got the original car, the toy no, car. I wish. Uh, I wish. But, but only if you got it in its box. Yeah, that wouldn't have happened. No, exactly. <laughs> it got ripped open the first as soon as we yeah, got, it, got yeah. the car. So what did it, yeah. it had the little thing at the back that flipped up, the little shield that stopped the bullets coming in. It had yeah. the ejector seat, obviously. Yeah. And didn't it have some machine guns at the front? Yes, yep. it did. Mm-hmm. You see, Elijah, this is what being a child of the 60s gets you, a yeah. Bond car. <laughs> Bond car and, and spaceships. And spaceships, NASA. There's another thing we're talking. You wait till we get to you only live twice. Um, (laughs) But the other two films were much more adult. Doctor No and From Russia With Love. I mean, From Russia With Love as as a very, and I accept everything, Elijah and Graham, what you said about it looking cheaper, but its plot was far more intricate. Yes, the plot was a lot simpler in this one, I think. It didn't require much thought did it what we now call a typical bond villain as well larger than life Ooh. character See, I thought larger bond... than life but not larger than a plane window <laughs> no, no, no indeed no. yes and yeah impressive that was but, yes that but, was uh, that was a nice ending but before we go into the mechanics one thing i, I want to pick up on is this is the only sean connery film where he plays bond and i include in this never say never again which is the unofficial remake of Thunderball, where Spectre is not mentioned. It's a completely really? standalone film. There's no Blofeld, there's no Spectre. It's just mm. this guy who wants to make his gold worth more money. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't want that? <laughs> well, you know. I mean, what he could have done is just, you know, released a pandemic over the world population. That, uh... It's just crazy talk. That that would never happen. But just to go back to the plot, although the plot was simple, I think it was very well executed. I mean, the fact that, uh, you know, he had to follow this guy. He had to get his interest. And, you know, we had the bit with the laser beam and he gets out of that quite cleverly. And uh, those little things that drive forward the narrative were very well done. And, and also the fact that he didn't want to steal the gold. He wanted to make the gold unusable. Yeah. Yeah, that's a spoiler alert for anybody listening to this. And if you haven't seen Goldfinger, <laughs> what the hell are you doing listening to this? Um, <laughs> you know, most of the time, the Bond villains always look down on James Bond as a lesser person. And it's the one time in all the films where Bond is actually impressed by the plot where he's sitting down with Goldfinger and suddenly in James Bond's mind, he sees what Goldfinger's trying to do and he's visibly impressed. Bond says, oh, I've worked this all out. It's going to take you 20 days or something to shift all the gold or you can't do it. And he just looks at him, I'm not interested in shifting the gold. Quite a clever little plot point. See, if he just shifted the gold onto bodies... It would have been really easy. Well, they'd only one little trolley for shifting the gold. That was the problem. <laughs> if they got more trolleys, they could have probably got some more gold out. Well, why didn't you just the, pile, it, pile it up on the case with the bomb in? They could have got more on that. <laughs> <laughs> 
it was the way but the just lumps, lumps of gold were just lying about made me laugh. There's just there was big stacks of it just lying about as if they, well, we haven't got to that yet. America the one thing the America is known for is being really casual about our gold reserves. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Just leave them lying around. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are a few ingots just, you know, sitting outside at Fort Knox, you know. <laughs> yeah. Just chilling in the sun. And the, the, sort of all the people of Fort Knox are so nonchalant. Yeah. When I was working in British Airways, I think it was the Brinks mat, was it? One of the ones where they stole a whole load of gold and it went through Heathrow. And one of them was painted black. I think they painted them black to shut spaddle them out. One of them was left over and it was used as a doorstop by the baggage handlers for about 20 years before somebody realised. And it's one of those stories that sort of gets told over and over again, but it's probably completely untrue. So Sean Connery, I think, is at the top of his game. No, it's the first Bond film where he wore a toupee. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. Yep. It is, indeed. Did notice uh, that. His hair no. never moves. So relaxed in the role and just so brilliant at the one-liners. Yeah, I think he's at, he's definitely at his most Bonzi. Absolutely perfect in the role. He did other things between them, didn't, didn't he? He was working with Hitchcock around this time. He did uh, Marnie. I think he'd grown as an actor. And I was just reading about a film he made a couple of years previous with Lana Turner, where Mm. Lana Turner's mafia boyfriend turned up on set because Connery was playing the romantic lead and uh, got very jealous and pulled a gun on Connery. Connery disarmed him and beat the crap out of him. (laughs) (laughs) So There we go. I think there's a story that Michael Caine tells of them getting into a bar fight. Oh, that, that sounds plausible, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Sean Connery just whooping a bunch of guys. And yeah. from my recollection of him telling the story, it sounded very similar. It sounded like Michael Caine's character in um, Secondhand Lions, you know, when he's rescuing oh. his his brother and he just kind of stands there and does nothing while his brother beats everyone. What a fantastic <laughs> film that is. I love oh, yeah. that film. Have you guys seen it, Graham Neal? Yes, I've seen it. Great. Which film. one's that? Sorry, Secondhand Lions. Lions. Michael Caine yeah. and Robert Duvall. Yeah, no. it's such an incredible movie. Oh, you so see good. It. It's brilliant. The best <laughs> line ever is Michael Caine's voice over the princess saying, "I must meet this man." <laughs> <laughs> I've completely lost the one we're going to be talking about now. So yeah. Um. Yeah, we spoke again about how things have changed and how this became the first Bond film that we recognise as a Bond film. It's the first one to have a title song, for example. Mm. You've got the gadgets. You've got Q coming up with that immortal line, I never joke about my work, 007. Desmond Llewellyn sort of really makes an impression. Even though they got rid of the Sylvia Trench character that had been in Dr. No and From Russia With Love, and I think it would have been interesting what they would have done with her this time. She went when Terence Young left. It just set a different standard, and it's a standard that continued right through after this, I think. I think they'd really thought, oh, we've got it now, uh, because this was a huge hit uh, compared to the absolutely massive international hit, and they thought, all right, we've we've struck gold, pardon the pun, but uh, let's just keep this formula. Third time's the charm. Sometimes yeah, it yeah. is a charm, yeah. And, and it's interesting, you know, the director, Terence Young, goes. He had a big falling out with the producers over money. 
and production profits. So he left and went off elsewhere, though we will come back on Thunderball, and we'll talk about that in the next Bond discussion. But you've got other people coming back. So Ken Adams, the production designer, comes back. And what a difference that makes. I mean, Graham, I'll come to you because you made a point when we spoke about From Russia With Love saying it looked cheap. Oh, God, it did. It did look cheap. From Russia With Love looked drab, dreary and stagey all the time. It just looked like a stage production that they'd stuck a camera in front of. And then you look at the sets on Goldfinger and it's just like, wow, they really got, especially the bit where Goldfinger's monologuing about his great plan and he spins the snooker table around, and then the whole floor opens up. And you think of the the incredible sets, or the set where he's cutting Bond with the laser beam. All of those things looked really, really good. And also, and Jeff, we've spoken about it this this before, the scene they do at the Bank of England, where Bond goes and has dinner with M, and chairman of the Bank of England, that room they're sitting in is just so opulent. It just had that class and that finesse that just wasn't in either of the previous two no, movies. And, and, and Hamilton knows how to make the most of it. He does a big panning shot yes. as you go through the room and then stops at the maximum point where you can see everything from the ornate ceiling to this huge dining table to the three guys just having a meal. Under a huge chandelier. Yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable, yeah. And Ken Adams' design of Fort Knox was amazing. You also got Morris Binder back on the credits. Who? <laughs> I'm Jeff. Come on, I missed this. He did Dr. No, and he did most of them. He used sort of Margaret Nolan, who played Dink, and they projected oh. bits of the film onto her body. You know, an idea later picked up by Mission Impossible. Show clips from the film or the TV series coming up. All right, Okay. In From Russia Love, we had a conversation about the fact that it looked cheap just projecting images onto a woman's body. Well, at this time, they're projecting it onto a woman's gold body. The other thing I thought was incredible about this film, very little of it was shot in America. There's some second unit work. Connery never went to America. The Fort Knox stuff, brilliant story on this. They were allowed to do a couple of fly passes over it. And they said, as long as you stay at 3,000 feet. And Guy Hamilton wasn't happy because the footage coming back in just didn't look dynamic. It was just too high up. So the last pass, he had him come down to 500 feet. <laughs> the American military did not find that funny. But, uh, it didn't go down well. Oh, he could have been shot down. <laughs> yeah. He could have been shot yeah. down, yes. But the only footage they used was the stuff from 500 feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the stuff was unusable. Full credit the American army, they were the extras passing out in all those scenes. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, they were, weren't they? Look, a lot of the location work, well, the majority of it was done in the UK and the filming was done in the UK and Switzerland. And I must admit, I was particularly impressed, and I don't say this very often, with the Swiss locations. What do you guys think of that? I thought the Swiss locations were brilliant. You could see where they were. <laughs> Just, yeah. Yeah, you could immediately say, oh, that's Switzerland. But let's talk about villains as we were speaking about the Swiss. And uh, um, <laughs> good Frog was dubbed because his English wasn't yeah. very good. Did that work for you? Well, yes, because I've seen it so many times. And yet 
I didn't know it had been dubbed. It was such a surprise to me when they said, oh, yes, we dubbed him because nobody could understand him when he tried to speak English. And I just thought, you what? Did he get dubbed in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang as well? By that time, he'd done so many sort of international movies. Obviously, he's in um, Those Magnificent Men in the Flying Machines and films like yeah. that. Who is he in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Is he the king? He's the king, yeah. Oh wow! Well, um, I'm going to have to watch trying that to again. kill his trying to kill his wife. <laughs> Do you know the connection? Talk connection? about a film that would not be made today. I love that yeah. scene. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my little chuchy face and letting letting things fall from the uh, suits of from- armor. Apart from Brilliant. Good Probe, do you know the other connection between Goldfinger and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Fleming wrote it. There we go. Neil, say yeah. I'm talking well. What? Yeah, Ian Fleming, Fleming wrote Fleming. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. That's why it's so gruesome, I think. How? Well, How is that yeah. from the same person? How anybody came up with a child catcher, I don't know, but he terrified me when I was a kid. Yeah, but- but look it was I feel so like Chitty Chitty Bing Bing was when Roald Dahl took drugs. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was <laughs> yeah. in the 60s, so there were a lot of drugs being done, and obviously... And, and we were more casual with our children then. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. But also, I mean, this hit a particular problem because of the cast in the group, Frobe, because Frobe, in his youth, was a member of the Nazi party, and Israel oh, banned the film outright. And it was only when these people come forward and said, actually we're Jewish and he saved our lives, smuggled us out of Germany, that they relented and allowed the film to be shown over in Israel. Oh, wow. But Frobe himself never publicised that fact. You know, others did. He didn't say a word about it. But let's talk about the other villain. Because up to this point, in all the Bond films, you've got great villains. I think Goldfinger is a fantastic person. Dr. No, you know, Red Grant, even Kronstein. Uh, and, of course, Rosa Klebb in the other films. But then you've got Odd Job. And Odd Job is, I think, the first Bond villain that almost takes it into horror territory. He can't talk. You can't beat him in a fair fight. And he's got a weapon that is just unbelievable with that hat. Uh, I, th- I think him. he was great, yeah. The hat is kind of stupid, but other than that, it's it's, it's cool. But it was so 60s. Having you know a guy who could chop your head off with his hat, you know it was just that the blade is wide enough to cut through a head. Anyway, sorry, (laughs) it took the head straight off that that statue. It was the worst (laughs) special effect ever. And then it didn't cut any heads off afterwards, so I was a little disappointed. (laughs) Yeah, no, there wasn't a mark. No, uh, when he killed Tilly Masterson, Harold Sakata was he was American. He was from Hawaii. Oh right, just a great personality. He was an Olympic lovely. wrestler, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, mm. lovely chap by all accounts. <laughs> and, they, and they do say some of the nicest people make the best movie villains. Yeah. yeah. But one but thing think... about him is he's just so huge. I mean, you yeah. look at him and you think, oh, crap. <laughs> Bond is screwed. The fact that, you know, he didn't speak, building up this air and this tension around him that you're thinking, oh, what's going to happen? What's he going to do? Until you get to the final battle between the two of them, and it was just so well done. A consummate professional, he burned his hand quite badly in one scene, and oh, wow. just carried on filming. That would be the scene where he's trying to get the hat back, and all the sparks are going off. Marks are flying around. around, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. I wonder if that yes. even phased him with a guy that big and that tough. <laughs> so, like, you, you know, there are guys who are big and they have to act intimidating. I don't even feel like he was trying to act intimidating. No. You make a really good point there, Elijah, because one of the things about him is, other than the scene at the end when Connery has the hat and is going to throw it at him, he's always smiling. Mm-hmm. And that makes him even more frightening. Believes he can't be touched. So we've covered so far the great villains. We've covered the gadgets, clearly the car. Wonderful performance from Connery. Let's talk about the women, and we are going to cross over into a bit of misogyny here. You know, we, <laughs> we, did, touch, we did touch on it in From Russia with Love, you know, with the back to the salt mines line. Yeah. But the dink sequence in the beginning, when he just slaps her on the backside and said, scram men's talk, I thought that was just amazing, really. You know, well, I, I was thinking that. more of the scene before that where a guy is about to punch him and he puts a woman in front. Oh, yeah. So she takes the blow to the I face. Yes. <laughs> the human shield. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to be fair, I did think when watching this, I was watching it with my wife and part of the way through, Graham phoned out. So I thought, oh, let's try this. So I did slap her on the backside gently and say, <laughs> scram men's talk. Eventually, my shoulder went back in. <laughs> it took a while. But, you know, it, it seems that 60s values are sort of a bit frowned upon today. Yeah. You know, every woman Gosh. fawns over Bond in this film. We'll come back to Honor Blackman. Uh, that deserves separate mention. You know, the maid who opens the door for him. Uh, um, he is with then, three women in the first 15, 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah. Like, I think in the others, he's with a total of two women per film, right? Yeah. No, nope. In the first one, he's with three. Oh, yeah, there's three. That's right. It's the Sylvia Trench character. There's the attache who's trying to distract him and keep him there so he can get killed. And Penny Child Rider. Hmm. Yeah, but yeah. I think you're all focusing on it from Bond's point of view. From the women's point of view, it's shocking. It, this film treats women as if they're always, oh, oh, he looked at me. Oh, I'll just fall at his feet. It's terrible. It's absolutely yeah. the The women in this film are literally objects to be projected yes. upon. Like the credits, credits where they're yeah. projected on, on, on her. <laughs> actually, that's, uh, actually, yeah, yeah that, that's really good. Yeah. yeah. So they, the they, opening credits are foreshadowing. Yes, yeah. they're projecting loads of images of Bond onto their bodies. Wait, he doesn't even give it a break. You know, he goes from the girl that he slaps on the butt to the girl that dies and gets painted gold in like what five, ten minutes, and the maid in between. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Neil, I have to ask you at this point: Does Viagra work like that? <laughs> <laughs> It's a good job you're self-isolating, otherwise he'd drive over to your house and punch you in the nose. (laughs) Well, it might still happen. (laughs) Just bring a long pole. (laughs) That'll be a first for Neil. Uh, (laughs) You're all day. So hang hang on, the primary school is ringing. Do they want their jokes back? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, and the other line that we missed out here is when he's with Shirley Eaton before she's painted gold, Felix Leitner phones him up and he says, I can't come 
something big's come up. I thought that was no. class. <laughs> no. That's what he says. <laughs> yeah. There is some cringeworthy stuff in the film, isn't oh my there? But there is in every all of these 60s ones. And all the first four films, and we include Thunderball, which we'll talk about next time, but Richard Maibaum, the screenwriter, wrote all four of them. So there's a consistency with these cheesy lines of dialogue. And interestingly, he's an American writer. So even from the word go, they brought in an American on the script with one eye on the global box office. I do think some of the one-liners are quite funny. I did like shocking. As cheesy as they are, Connery delivers them so Mm. well. Yes, Yes, he does. Yeah. That they don't feel all that cheesy. There are classic quotes from this film, you know, an exchange between Bond and Goldfinger, where Bond says, do you expect me to talk? And Goldfinger replies, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. expect you to die. Yeah. It's just fantastic stuff. I used to have a techno remix of the James Bond theme. And they included that quote in it. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. (laughs) So, Jeff, tell me. How could I see this film as an eight-year-old kid when it first came out? <laughs> because I mean, wasn't it in the cinema? Rated, wasn't it's it rated? rated a. Oh, it was A for everybody. Yeah, anybody can go. A for everybody. What? Yeah. Oh, all, yeah. all audiences. <laughs> all audiences. Uh, yeah, yeah. So the 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 certificates at that time were U Universal, uh, A. Yeah, all audiences, but some discretion required. Double A. Under 14 required a parent or guardian um, and an ex certificate. Hmm. And that was just over 18s. Yeah. That was just over 18s for that. But it doesn't mean ex certificate as in porn ex certificate. It meant ex certificate as in this is material for adults. But hmm. it's, you know, that, that's of a sensitive nature. But mostly probably porn. No, not, well, not at this time. Not I mean, in the UK. Uh, no. I mean, yeah, you would get. You get a lot of kitchen sink dramas. I mean, Psycho, for example, was an ex. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And things like that. Horror films. Britain hates horror films. The senses. So anything horror was an ex. Must be related to Neil and Graham. Yeah. 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 <laughs> actually, I'm surprised. So we saw all the women. We haven't spoken about Honor Blackman yet. And it's the first Bond girl that wasn't dubbed. So she was big on TV at that time. She played a character called Kathy Gale in The Avengers, uh, not to be confused with that silly Marvel thing. The Marvel she, knockoff? Yeah, that's it, the Marvel knockoff of The Avengers. She you know, left that series and was under a bit of a cloud. There's a wonderful interview I heard years ago with uh, the guy that played Patrick McNee, who played John Steed in The Avengers, was quite upset over the way she left. And then they did it again when the Avengers recast. They put Diana Rigg in, and she left to do another Bond film later on. This would have been the start of her career, but her career never really took off. This was the hype. Honor Blackman only died, what, two months ago? Yeah. And all the obituaries, Bond girl dies. So you nothing about the work that she'd done since. Yeah, she never really capitalized on it and she's so good here i think anyway i mean what do you guys think 
she starts off sort of pushing him away and everything. So I thought she was definitely the best Bond, Bond girl to date. And yeah, I thought she was excellent and obviously a good actress. Yeah, I think she uh, she seems more self possessed than the others do. She's not like immediately fawning over Bond mm. and trying to uh, you know take his pants off. Yeah, and that's interesting because more overt in the book, but in this as well, she is a lesbian. And, you know, she comes out with a line to Bond in the beginning. Yeah, I'm immune to your charms. I'm immune yes. to your charms. The flying circus meant everything to her in all sorts of ways. Mm-hmm. By the way, as a complete aside, that flying circus is where Monty Python's flying circus got its name from. The whole plot then spins on her being turned back to the straight and narrow by Bond. Oh, good When he great. has sex with her. Jeez. And she then... No, no, that's right. No, 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 no. But she's but, told by, but she's told by her boss to uh, entertain him or keep him entertained. Is, but I don't think he meant the role in the hay business that went on later on. <laughs> no, that was just entertaining. But entertaining for who at this point? Yeah. Well, yeah. But after that, she went to tell Felix Leiter and the F and the CIA what was going on because even Bond was surprised when they weren't dead. So uh, I want to know, know which soldiers doing. committed so much to crash their vehicles. Uh, and what charge did they end up on? The whole plot of Goldfinger turns on Bond converting a lesbian. <laughs> you laugh. And but, who uh, says conversion therapy doesn't work in the movies? We, <laughs> we, we, we have had that discussion. The miseducation of Cameron Post would be a different film had Sean Connery as James Bond been in it. Dear old Lord. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, now I've brought it down to that level. Let's yeah. talk about the Fort Knox sequence. Again, spectacular cinema. And as a teenager watching that, it was just amazing. You know, they break in and then he's got all the villains around him. He's got, in fact, that was quite good with the villains. Let me see. You've got Germans, Koreans, Cubans. There's a Cuban there as well. And the Chinese. <laughs> Are you saying there's a subplot now? Yeah, all he wanted was Vietnamese. You had a clean sweep for the sixties. <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> but I think that's a spectacular sequence from the way everybody passes out to the way they break in. You know, even down to when they switch it off and it's double oh seven on the counter. Yes, although. If you listen to the dialogue very carefully. Exactly. Yes, I was, was going to say that. Yeah. Yeah, it ended up at three, not seven. And they just yes. changed it. Yes. In the, obviously, in the edit room, they said, oh, wouldn't it be good if it stopped at 007? Yeah. Let's talk about something that is great here. And that's John Barry's score. Just magnificent from the word go. You know, you've got the first song, which is belted out by Shirley Bassey, cuts into that cue of Into Miami, which is a wonderful track on its own. But I think one of the Bond music set pieces is the Fort Knox raid. And we, we spoke mm. about everybody passing out the attack, but you've got Barry's music playing over that, beautifully timed. The whole sequence was fantastic. Whether Fort Knox looks like that or not, it doesn't matter. And do they really have gold bars lying around? Probably not, but <laughs> it, it doesn't matter. I mean, nobody knew what Fort Knox looked like inside anyway, so... You could get away with it. And I, I think that the whole plan was fantastic, really. I agree that the music does add, as a kid watching it, I think it was the first final act 
big action set piece I'd ever seen. Everything's hinges down on the last few seconds and there's the, the lead up to it, gassing everybody, everybody appearing to be asleep. Then you have them getting in and breaking into the bank and going inside and you have this amazing environment and Bond's in danger and then everybody wakes up and, oh, things have changed. Oh, have they? But then Goldfinger closes the uh, safe and then it's, oh, it's all switched again. So nicely done, you know, constantly ramping up the tension, constantly ramping up the peril for our, our hero and just done so well. And they use the giant laser. And they use the giant laser, yeah. I mean, this was the first big James Bond hit in America and it changed everything. You know, the way you look at all the films that follow, you look at Thunderball and You Only Live Twice, outlandish, big set pieces, big explosions at the end. Do you think this, the way that Bond set what was to go ahead, as opposed to what pre- was previous to it, Dr. Noam from Russia with Love, we lost something? I mean, the new formula's influenced so much of action cinema. I mean, I as recently as Hobbs and Shaw. I mean, it's essentially the same plot. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I, I, there's a place for the the first two, but I think the uh, Goldfinger set the tone for pretty much every Bond afterwards, up until Daniel Craig, really, didn't it? Yes. Yeah, and Daniel Craig was more influenced by uh, J- uh, Jason Bourne. Hmm. Yes. Uh, yes. They had to change yeah. it. Two thousands had to uh, do something. The um, style of Doctor No set the tone for Bond. And some of the the villains in From Russia with Love, but I think the whole set piece is the the grandness of it all. It was definitely set all by uh, Goldfinger. Yeah, that's a really good summing up, there, Neil. I think because yeah, <laughs> if we stop it, now, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Terence Young set the initial standards <laughs> in the first two films. As we said in the beginning, Guy Hamilton up the game of the whole thing. And you're quite right. Yeah, without those two films, you couldn't have gone in at Goldfinger. You had to to build to this. Yeah. Yes. It's the style. It's as we talked about in Doctor No, the style of it got quite futuristic almost. Yes. That these villains were ahead of the, the forces for good. Took someone like Bond to be able to get in and, and do the work. They had to go one, two, three, and three wouldn't have worked without them, yeah. It all leads up to uh, Bond surfing on a giant ice wave. <laughs> Die another day. I wish that film had died that day. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I agree. I think the first Bond film had all the ideas, had the, the hero, had the set dressing, and the villain, all set up, very good start. The second one lost the plot completely, as far as I'm concerned. You don't really want to set up an action hero film around a chess game. That's really not going to work. But the third one picked it back up again and really ran with the idea. So we had the same set designer back. Uh, I mean, I thought all the stuff that was done in Kentucky, it looked so American. Mm. But it was obviously filmed in the UK, but they'd made it look like Kentucky. It was just so well done. It felt like a Hollywood production. And at the time, I remember being absolutely wowed by the film. It set in motion so many people who became Bond fans for life. 
Uh, And again, you get to watch lasers, you get to watch a fat guy get sucked out of a plane. It's just great. (laughs) And on that sequence, did you notice, by the way, when he sucked out of the plane? So when Goldfinger comes out with the gun and points it at Bond to say, that's it, I'm going to have you for this. Right behind him is a Korean henchman. And then when Goldfinger gets sucked out of the plane, said henchman is seen on the floor. You just don't notice it because your focus is on Goldfinger. You don't see this bits that Peter had edited out. Yeah, it, it is kind of impressive what the vacuum can do on a body that big. Yeah, wouldn't he have just got stuck? I would think he'd get stuck and he would have sealed the room, so it should yes. have been fine. That's yeah. not very cinematic. I think we're all in agreement that of the three Bond films we've reviewed so far, this is by far the best. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, f- for men only. Yeah, the best and the most misogynistic, which is yeah. not, there's not actually a correlation. <laughs> no. I don't think, but it's uh, it's simultaneously. I learned never to use the scram men's talk line on my wife again. I think it is a tremendous film, tremendous toys, although, you know, on cars, I preferred the Rolls Royce made of gold. It's but a little heavy, it's... though. It doesn't really run all that well. <laughs> no. no. Can you imagine trying to get up to speed on that sucker? You blame it on Goldfinger sitting in the back. Yes. <laughs> um, worth its weight in gold yeah. oh. nice one and on that gold plated retort we oh, will um, good. they're off on a roll now aren't they we'll, um, <laughs> we'll draw a line under this one James Bond will return when we speak next about Thunderball it's always fun talking Bond and this has been our Bond show spectacular. So thanks thanks to you guys for all your contribution. Thanks to our listeners. And we'll play out with a bit of the music from Goldfinger. Thank you very much. See you on the next one, guys. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.